tonight I would like to talk about coming into our bodies, really the bodies, our bodies as the, the path of practice. It is the, in spite of what ideas you may have had when you started spiritual practice or started this practice, this is very much an in-the-body practice. It's not an out-of-body practice. The, the cure for our pain, we say, and as Rumi says, is in the pain. It is through directly experiencing it. So it, in many ways, our practice is the exact opposite of getting out. It's really going in. Perhaps going in to the extent where it's beyond in and out. We're just here. But we use our bodies as a way, because our bodies are always here, they're always present. We use them as a way of orienting ourselves to this present moment. But not just to orient ourselves to this present moment. Coming into our body provides a capacity that we have to not just get to know what it's like to be in our body, but through this careful attention to our body, as you'll, you're about to hear, we can discover, realize the deepest truths about our nature and to really in this very life to be free. From the numbered discourses of the Buddha, I'll start with the sutra called Mindfulness Directed to the Body feel like I'm a rabbi about to give my sermon, but it gives me a strange feeling. (laughs) Anyway, I'll read the sutra. Even as one who encompasses with his mind the mighty ocean includes thereby all the rivulets that run into the ocean, just so, O nuns and monks, monks in this case, or or nuns, or anyone who is interested in awakening. We don't have to get lost in the in the monastic view of nuns and monks. O monks, whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes thereby all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge. One thing, O monks, if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit, to great security from bondage, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, the body is calmed, the mind is calmed, Discursive thoughts are quieted, and all wholesome states that partake of, partake of supreme knowledge reach fullness of development. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, ignorance is abandoned. Supreme knowledge arises. Delusion of self is given up. Underlying tendencies are eliminated, and the fetters are discarded. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. 
it goes on and on. Talking about the benefits of mindfulness directed to the body. But thinking of it less as a sutra, but more as something that we can know immediately. I was just thinking as I was sitting, you may have thought I was quiet sitting here, but I was actually thinking for a few minutes. But what I was appreciating in my thoughts was the moment that I sat down after having been in my mind uh, in this imagined world of the upcoming discourse, I had entered into what I call the talk bardo today, this gap, this space of time where I'm thinking about a talk and I'm very much in that little world of, of the talk and part of that little world of the talk is I've, I'm creating the picture of the world that is about to come, and then I'm wondering in my mind whether that world will be okay. Maybe some of the same thoughts, similar kinds of thoughts that you had when you came to the retreat. How is it going to go? What's going to happen? And I noticed that when I was in that state of wondering, of, of, of course, a natural desire for it to go smoothly, I, without being so clear in the moments of being caught in it, I was held to a certain degree in a state, what I'd call a state of suspended well-being. A state where I, I, my well-being became, for that time, dependent on and tethered to how this talk went. And whether I was able to say what I wanted to say and say it in a way that uh, I wanted to say it, etc., etc., and in one way, this relative to our teach, the teachings that I'm about to offer tonight, I had just entered into the world of the Four Noble Truths. Just briefly, the, the Four Noble Truths, there is stress, distress. The cause of it is a state of wanting things to be a certain way, wanting things to be different, wanting being in a state of thirst or hunger. Third truth, there's an end to that. And there's a path to the end of it. And what I noticed when I came into the hall to sit, and just like you had been doing all day, I put my mind in the same location as my body again. I let my mind sink into my body. I let my body fill my mind. And in that very instant, that little lifetime that I had created of the about-to-talk, the imagined me who was going to give the talk, that whole little virtual dreamscape, it all melted away. And there was just the... It wasn't completely uh, immaculate peace. It was the, there was the residue of everything I had felt, but that residue was just the felt experience of sitting. But in that instant of just connecting with the simplicity of sitting with things just the way they were, the suffering, or what I'll call the suffering, the distress, the anticipation, all of that melted away into the immediacy of my experience. So you could say that in that moment I came, I experienced the third truth, the end of suffering, the end of distress. It seems too simple. But in many cases, in, I would say in most cases in our life, the end of suffering, the end of distress, 
is a split second, a half breath away. It's a question of remembering to place our attention in the immediate, the only place that we can find life, in the immediate unfolding present. So I want you to, even as you, as we begin the discourse this evening, just notice what it's like, just in the simple moments of putting your mind in your body. The body has a, has, is a wonderful gift. And it is, it is both, as the Buddha said, it's, without this body, we don't even have a life or a world. In a famous sutra or passage, he said, within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the world, the cause of the world, the cessation of the world and the path that leads to the cessation of the world. So what does he mean by the world? Now, what do we normally think of as the world? Saying in this, within this fathom-long body is the world, lies the world. Normally, what we think of as the world is the the enormity of problems, the situation of the world, the politics. I can easily, in a moment, manufacture this whole picture of the world. But that picture of the world, which is wonderful that I have the capacity to think about it, that I can remember what I've read or heard or seen, And then I can think about it and conjure up an image. But often, I don't don't really, in that case, I don't really experience the world. That's not really the world. That's the virtual world. That's the imagined world. When the Buddha said, in this very fathom-long body exists the world, what did he really mean by that? To me, it means the world that is uh, not just of our imagination, but the world that is felt, the world that is directly experienced, the world that can only be experienced right here. In, In some ways, free of our imagination, or at least noticing our imagination. This is the world. And the world in that way comes down to, to what's happening, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're smelling, what we're tasting, what we're feeling, what we're thinking, and that's all. But because of, of the experience of this world that can be felt and experienced in that simple in that simple way that world of experience has as you probably noticed all day today has a range of um, flavors it has a, a range of tones sometimes it's 
exquisitely pleasant. Sometimes it is excruciating. It's painful. Sometimes there is uh, pressure. Sometimes there's tension. Sometimes there's squeezing, burning, stabbing, itching, searing. There is softness. There is, there is ease. There is, um, there is vibrating. There is pulsing. There is streaming. There's a whole range of sensations. But many of the sensations that we experience are the residue of past experiences where it wasn't so pleasant. It was really hard for us to bear. Do any of you have any of those experiences that were hard to be with? Well, they leave a residue in our bodies. And over time, you could say that because of our uh, ignorance, uh, because of innocently, because of confusion, because we really didn't know how to be with those experiences, whenever something pleasant would come into our experience, it would produce a little charge in our mind. And that charge was a charge of, I like this. And then if it was unpleasant, it produced a charge, I don't like this. And those little charges, they don't, they don't seem like much. But when they go unnoticed, as they have from, you could say, beginningless time, when they go unnoticed, they tend to produce a kind of internal pressure. And that pressure generates some degree of liking, disliking, wanting, uh, craving, and these simple reactions that we start to have to pleasant and unpleasant experiences tend to harden into a a habit of reacting, a habit of leaving ourselves, of disconnecting from our bodies, disconnecting from this present moment, and then entering into the world of our imagination. And in that way, entering into what we call the world. But in doing that, we we begin to leave the world in a way. So when the Buddha says, in this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the world, he's describing the world that presents itself to anyone who is, um, who is born. And what presents itself to anyone who is born, this is really connected to his teaching on the Four Noble Truths, anybody who is born, you could say birth, is the leading cause of this reactivity that I talked about. It's the leading cause of stress of all sorts. It's the leading cause of the stress of being born, the stress of aging, the stress of illness, the stress of dying, the stress that comes, the reactivity and the impingement and the effect on our body when we don't get what we want, the effect on the body when we don't want what we get, and that experiencing the body is... um, 
is by its nature, it has an element of stress and distress. This is how the Buddha diagnosed our situation. But he didn't say, go out of yourself to to get away from this. He didn't say to space out. He didn't say to construct a world in your mind. He didn't say, uh, feed your feed all your desires. What did he say? He said, with this prescription, with this uh, diagnosis, he says, this must be uh, welcomed. This must be understood. That if you're born, you have this, you have this um, experience of stress. Otherwise, we fall into what one story described as the 84th problem. I'll read you the story. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children. Yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked the Buddha how he could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, Sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. So the Buddha's prescription was to accept that we have 83 problems. Accept that we, every one of us, it's not just us, it's not our fault. Every one of us has three kinds of what he called dukkha, three kinds of of things in our lives that are difficult to bear. The first kind he called dukkha dukkha, which is the the garden variety stress, the ones I just described, birth, sickness, old age, death, separation, loss, not getting what you want, not wanting what you get. Nobody is immune to this. If we don't open to this, what happens? Our life is, as Rumi put it, an endless running from silence. And the third thing he said about this truth is that um, is not only do we have to welcome it, but we have to be able to say, yeah, I, I opened to this. I saw it just the way it was. I see it just the way it is. Second and third kind of, of dukkha, there's what he called anicca dukkha, or the, 
the stress that comes with change, that our pleasurable experiences give way to the unpleasant, that we're continually in our life, if you're born, remember, leading cause of all these things, you inevitably will be blown every which way by the what are called the, the eight worldly winds. The winds of praise, the winds of blame, the winds of pleasure, pain, gain and loss, fame and shame. Everyone, there's nobody who is immune to that. We just have to open to it. How do we open to it? We feel it. We feel it in this very moment. We don't adopt a view about it. We don't adopt a religion about pain. We feel it as it presents itself. We feel a sense of loss. We feel a sense of whatever it is that's going on. How many of you noticed that it was that your mind didn't want to feel your body today? Just a few people. <laughs> Did any of you plan your escape? Any of you wonder why you were here? Did any of you think about the, uh, when the bell was going to ring? <laughs> the next meal? How about the Dharma talk? <laughs> High pressure. Entertainment of the day. The Buddha didn't stop with, with the fact that there is stress in our lives and all these different kinds of stress. Oh, I didn't give you the third one. The first one, Dukkha Dukkha, Anicca Dukkha. The third one is called Sankara Dukkha. And that's Sankara Dukkha. Sankara is the word for uh, conditions. And it's the conditionality of things. It's the you can reflect on this and recognize it as the, the very the contingent nature of your existence, how it's not your fault that you were here. I have a poem that perhaps will illustrate this. It's called, it's by Jacqueline Berger. It's called Why I'm Here. Because my mother was on a date with a man in a band, and my father, thinking she was alone, asked her to dance. And because years earlier my father dug a foxhole, but his, buddies, his buddy, sick with the flu, asked him for it, so he dug another for himself. In the night, the first hole was shelled. I'm here because my mother was 27, and in the 50s, that was old to be single, still be single. And because my father wouldn't work on weapons, though he was an atomic engineer, my mother, having gone to Berkeley, liked that. My father liked that she didn't eat like a bird when he took her to the best restaurant in Los Angeles. The rest of the reasons are long gone. One decides to get dressed, go out, though she'd rather stay home, but no, melancholy must be battled through. So the skirt, the cinched belt, the shoes, and a life is changed. I'm here because Jews were hated, so my grandparents left their villages, came to America, Married one who could cook, one whose brother had a business, married longing and disappointment, 
and secured his way the future. In this way the future. It's good to treasure the gift, but good to see that it wasn't really meant for you. The feeling that it couldn't have been otherwise is just a feeling. My family around the patio table in July, I've taken over the barbecuing that used to be my father's job. Ask him how many coals, though I know how many. We've been gathering here for years, so I believe we will go on forever. It's right to praise the random, the tiny God of probability that brought us here, to praise not meaning, not feeling, the still warm sky at dusk, the light that lingers, and the night when it comes is gentle. So Sankara Dukkha is the, is the, uh, the conspiring of forces that uh, produce the conditions of your life. And they're very non-personal and in some ways ungovernable. You can't help but be here right now, given all the forces that, that have come to pass. But Sankara Dukkha also speaks to that feeling of it being hard to be so much at the effect of things all the time. Just our life in general, but then the effect of the constant barrage of of sights and sounds and smells and tastes, and then all the work that it takes to do our life, the demands that just keep coming, the conditions that just keep presenting themselves, that there's a certain stress in that. And And the encouragement is that we open to it. It's how it is. That if we fight with it, we suffer. If we complain about it, we, it, it makes it worse. found this poem this evening before I came in here I, that speaks to the reactivity to things the way they are. My worst habit is to get so tired of winter. I become a torture to those I'm with. If you're not here, nothing grows. I lack clarity. My words tangle and knot up. How to cure bad weather? Send it back to the river. How to cure bad habits? Send me back to you. When water gets caught in habitual whirlpools, dig a way out through the bottom of the ocean. There is a secret medicine given only to those who hurt so hard they can't hope. The hopers would feel slighted if they knew. Look as long as you can at the friend you love, no matter whether that friend is moving away from you or coming back toward you. Again, every message is about staying here, welcoming. As one teacher put it, warming up to the fact of dukkha, of coming and going, things just the way they are. Yata Bhuta is the Pali expression. Things just as they are. So the Buddha didn't stop with this passage that there is stress and in the sutra the within this fathom long body lies the world. He went on to say within this fathom long body lies the world and the cause of the world. And this speaks to what he described as the second noble truth, that the cause of the world, the cause of that uh, projection of our mind, that cause of our 
the mental distress that keeps us endlessly in that state of complaining or hope, looking for a future that never arrives. The cause of that is this uh, deeply conditioned habit, innocent as it is, conditioned habit of wanting things to be different than the way they are. And this habit expresses itself as the, uh, what I like to call the obsession with what's next, craving for what's next, craving for, generally gets focused on pleasures. It gets focused on becoming someone, continued existence, or the pursuit of some attempt to stop it all, to go to sleep, to check out, to even to the extent, to the, in the extreme form of aversion, to uh, the, it includes the suicidal impulse. But just another face of, of craving, another place of what the Buddha called tanha. We experience this state of craving the state of thirst, the state of, of becoming, the state of a tethering or associating or having our sense of well-being dependent on what's to come or what I will get or what I can get rid of. This is the, often the, the source of our, we think that the, that the future and getting where I want to be is the source of happiness. But what that does is it, it turns our present experience into a, um, into a place that we're just passing through on our way to somewhere else instead of the source of life itself, the center of our life. And so we're so much in the habit of of being caught in that thirst that, uh, that we miss our life. And we're taught from the time we're born to do this. It's reflected in our culture. As Sogil Rinpoche puts it, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of this samsaric loop, this, this constant search, endless wandering, and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps that it's so ingenious at setting for us. As one Tibetan Lama said, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, 
dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. So this is the reflection of what's happening in our own bodies. We experience those pleasurable moments that produces that feeling of liking. And before you know it, liking unrecognized is followed by wanting, wanting by craving, craving by, by getting caught in that sense of postponement or that sense of, of suspended happiness. And pretty soon our whole life is about satisfying a thirst. Our whole sense of happiness is, is dependent on what the Buddha called the, the happiness that depends on satisfying hunger. He called it lokiya sukha. He also called that kind of happiness the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage. What did the Buddha say about... He said this is the diagnosis the cause, starting with these felt reactions in our body, pleasure, pain, neutral experiences, followed by these reactions. The diagnosis was, as I described, the prescription, this must be relinquished, abandoned. Got to learn to let go. And how do we let go? How do we learn to come out of the tangle of that of hope and expectation and a sense of being dependent on on how the retreat goes, or whether the talk is good, or whether the meal is good, or whether all these things that we make our sense of well-being dependent? How do we how do we step out of that tangle? We feel it in the body. We feel, we use the very experience that spawns a lot of our compulsive thinking and planning and fantasizing. We use the underlying experience in the body as our doorway, as our, what Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, calls the manure of Bodhi. The very tension that we experience becomes our path to back to wholeness. It doesn't hurt to reflect a little bit, though, about the, the, uh, the futility of finding a reliable relief in, in this world of, of um, the pleasures of the senses, as wonderful as they are. One of my uh, favorite little passages from a teacher named Bo Lozoff, where he says, our, we are just so much driven by, in our life, in our culture, by trying to keep up with the Joneses. But he says, it's time that we realize that the Joneses are not happy. <laughs> and he goes on with a litany of things, of problems that uh, are, and are partly the result of this mis, uh, mistaken faith that we have in things that will uh, that just keep us more disconnected rather than help us connect. It all starts with these reactions in our body. 
Within this fathom-long body lies the world, the cause of the world, and that's spinning. He didn't stop there. He said that within this fathom-long body lies the world, the cause of the world, and the end of the world. This reflects on the third noble truth. There is an end to suffering. There is a cessation of suffering. That was the diagnosis and the prescription for this truth that there is an end of the world is to realize it. To realize it, to experience for yourself in this very life that, that sense of, of release. Now, whether or not you have some kind of profound experience of the ultimate cessation of suffering, which is very much, um, very much the, the aspiration of the potential for our practice to, have what, to experience what the Buddha called the sure heart's release. We can, without having this so-called sure heart's release, we can, in, the, in this very moment, in this very life, right now, in, the, in, the, in this retreat, know what the end of suffering is like in these simple moments of experiencing things just the way they are. As I described when I came in tonight, I had been caught in that state of becoming, that state of anticipation of the talk. I put my mind in my body, felt the reverberations of that, so I recognized the dukkha. I recognized the cause of it was this, was this anticipation. And in bringing the light of attention to that in that moment, putting my mind in my body, I experienced the cessation of that, that whole drama, that whole projection that my mind made. And in doing that, I also fulfilled the potential of the what's called the fourth noble truth. In, his, in this passage I read before, within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and inner sense lies the world, the cause of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path that leads to the cessation of the world. This speaks to the fourth noble truth, that there is a path that leads to the cessation of suffering, of distress. And in my little vignette, that uh, by virtue of bringing that light of attention on that experience of stress and its melting away, I both experienced the end of suffering and I, f- and I cultivated, or I followed the path to the end of suffering. And the Buddha's recommend- recommendation of the path, the so-called Noble Eightfold Path, has as its center, number one, the intention to be free, the intention to incline toward what is wholesome and to, to uh, abandon what is not so helpful and not so useful in your life, and then to have that intention followed by... by um, by some effort, the 
effort to, um, to collect and compose the attention, that in this very life, in this very retreat, you can know that we are very, very trainable, that our mind, you could say, our consciousness is an open field of creative possibility. And if you plant a seed of, of connection, connecting your attention with your body right here, connecting your being able to clearly comprehend what's happening in your body. I remember when Will gave instruction this morning, knowing when you're breathing in, knowing when you're breathing out, knowing when it's short, knowing when it's long, or maybe that was Anna, knowing when it's rough, knowing when it's smooth, that if you do this, you will naturally, it is your birthright, you will naturally come to experience uh, what we might call, or what the Buddha called, a calm abiding, a great joy in being just where you are, a capacity to have your body and mind suffused with, with a kind of pleasure and calm in spite of whatever's going on in the world, in the midst of it all. But, and if you do that, then and follow this path, you will also begin to be less inclined to engage in anything that opposes that kind of calm, that kind of presence, that kind of simplicity. So even these simple moments when you experience a calm abiding, even though they're not going to last so long, they don't, but they plant a little seed and they, they, help us, uh, they help us incline more toward that scent, toward the fragrance of peace, rather than the uh, fragrance of compulsivity. And if we do that enough, if we follow this path, by continuing to put our mind in our body, because it's always here, that we will, in time through paying attention to the flow of our experience, begin to see for ourselves without adopting any kind of views, without, without having to be a believer, but we can see for ourselves that things change. We can see that holding on brings suffering. We can see for ourselves that letting go brings freedom. And we can begin to sense regardless of what's presenting itself, we can begin to sense a well-being that doesn't depend on what's going on. We can recognize that within us there is this capacity, there is this um, observing power, there is this, um, this quality of, of cognizance and presence that can meet the joys and the sorrows without reactivity. And we can end the world as we, um, as we imagine it and discover the world as it actually is. As Hafiz said, you carry all the ingredients.
to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. (laughs) I'll skip over. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So when you're trudging along, just putting one foot in front of the other, you're moving through the different asanas, you're just feeling the movement of the breath, it may not seem like anything special is happening. But it is in that immediacy, in that ordinariness, that the the true gift is is there. Because it's there where we can find the world, as it is, the cause of it, the end of it, and the path to the end of it. So I want to end with a sutra from the Buddha called A Handful of Leaves. The Blessed One was living at Kasambi in a wood of simsapa trees. He picked up a few leaves in his hand and he asked the bhikkhus, How do you conceive this, bhikkhus? Which is more, the few leaves that I have picked up in my hand or those on the trees in the wood. The leaves that the Blessed One has picked up in his hand are few, Lord. Those in the wood are far more. So too, bhikkhus, the things that I have known by direct knowledge are more. The things that I have told you are only a few. Why have I not told them? Because they bring no benefit, no advancement, in the awakened life, because they do not lead to the cessation of suffering, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to nirvana. That is why I have not told them. And what have I told you? This is dukkha or suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. That is what I have told you. Why have I told it? Because it brings benefit and advancement in the awakened life. and Because it leads to dispassion, to fading, to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. So bhikkhus, let your task be this. This is dukkha suffering. This is the origin of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. This is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. So let's just put our minds and our bodies for a moment.
You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. Thank you for your kind attention. Sometimes hard to listen to a Dharma talk on the first night.